0: All right, let's head to Matthew chapter 19. So if you want to take out your phones, there's a Bible uh, most likely located close to you in a seat pocket as well. Uh, If you prefer to look at the text in black and white instead of uh, from a blue screen, uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 19. And uh, let me just remind you as you get to that uh, spot in Scripture that as we've journeyed through Matthew that the theme of the book is... uh, Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew's presenting uh, Jesus as the long awaited uh, Messiah or the Mashiach, the anointed one of Israel. And as uh, Matthew presents that uh, as the case, in chapters 1 through 10, we see the king being revealed to the nation of Israel. They've been waiting uh, 2,000 years, and now he's finally being revealed to them, only to see in chapters 11 through 13 what they do because they don't like the message that he gives. Uh, They promptly begin to resist the king. And so the king and his message are resisted by the very people that he was sent to save. And so from chapters 14 through chapter 20, the king is now retreating. And he's now in the middle of that retreat. And as he is uh, heading out retreating, he doesn't retreat off by himself, but he takes his disciples along with him and he uses this opportunity to teach and to train and so we see this wonderful opportunity the disciples this foundation of the new christian church have to actually learn from jesus and so as he is teaching and training what invariably happens is uh, naysayers they want to come and continue to trip him up uh, most uh, predominantly in the form of the pharisees and the sadducees uh, and these scribes they come and they want to ask Difficult questions of Jesus in order to trip him up. And I, as I was thinking about this week, I wondered as these uh, people continue to pop up over and over again, uh, they're like the characters in Hee Haw. They just show up in the middle of cornfields and all kinds of places, and they're looking to just pop out and trick Jesus. It's as the God of the universe, why doesn't he just avoid them? Why can't he just avoid these uh, men that want to come and bring these difficult questions uh, before him? And, and then it occurred to me, it's because he loved them. (laughs) He loved them enough to not let them be stuck in the middle of their religion, in the middle of their tradition that was so uh, ensnaring and entrapping. And so he allows them to come and ask difficult questions, which, by the way, uh, Matthew 19 is going to be full of all kinds of difficult questions. We are going to have not the easiest of topics today. Uh, We're going to cover marriage, divorce, remarriage, and then if that wasn't enough, we get to talk about eunuch's And money so there's gonna be a lots of fun happen in Matthew 19 and yet uh, as I've shared with you before because we teach expositionally through the Bible and through Scripture um, if you're uncomfortable with the topic you should have read ahead so this is a you problem for not looking ahead at the next scripture and just avoiding church today I'm not trying to encourage you to skip out on church don't get me wrong but nevertheless we're gonna be in Matthew 19 so verse 1 reads like this and now it came to pass When Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So if you remember, Jesus starts his ministry there in the Galilee region. This is that part of northern Israel. And he's been teaching and preaching throughout this area. He's even gone further north into Lebanon and over into modern-day Jordan. And he's taught in all these areas, but now he's heading down south towards the region of Judea which uh, the major city in the Judean region is Jerusalem. And so where Jesus is heading is now south towards Jerusalem. And this is important to our narrative because uh, Jesus is ultimately having a date with the cross. He knows that he is to be given over to these Jews that want to see him dead. He is to be beaten. He is to be put on false trial. And he is to die on behalf of our sins. And so he knows that this is the direction that he is headed. So we see the ministry now heading to the southern part of the nation of Israel. Then in verse 2, "...and the great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there." And the Pharisees, verse 3, also came to him, testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And so we see that Pharisees, uh, they show up again, they pop into the scene, and while Jesus is healing the multitudes, they want to throw a, a trick question out there to him. They want to ensnare him. And what I was reminded of this week as I was thinking about this, it's, it's who do you run around with? Do they uh, want to celebrate or do they just want to debate? I think that changes our mindset. When you're around people that just want to debate and just want to argue, what does that do to to you, to how you feel? I want to encourage you to be around more people that celebrate and less people that just simply want to debate. Because here in this spot, Jesus is looking to heal. They are looking to demonize him. They are looking to trip him up. And they ask him here at the end of verse 3, a hot-button topic in that day. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? This would seem like a a fairly good question to ask. I mean, the question of divorce, it's taking place. It happens in our country all the time. What a great question for them to earnestly come and ask Jesus, and yet uh, their motives were not pure. You see, because this was actually a political topic with uh, two different sides of the political equation weighing in. There were those in the Jewish community that followed the teachings of a very liberal teacher, a guy named Hillel. And so in his teaching, he took Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. This is in the Law of Moses. And what Moses wrote there to the nation was this. When a man takes his wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness, that's the key word, some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And so the debate between these two schools of teaching were what does uncleanness mean? What does that constitute to be unclean? So for the liberal viewpoint, uh, the teacher, Hillel, this rabbi, he taught that anything a man deemed as making his wife unclean, in fact, made her unclean. So they went so far because, uh, by the way, ladies, you all know this, men are deceitfully wicked. No big surprise there. They came up with all kinds of reasons why their wife was unclean. Like, hey, honey, you know I like my eggs over easy, not over medium. So therefore, I have deemed you unclean, and they file for a certificate of divorce. They would say, listen, you didn't iron my shirts the way I love my shirts to be ironed, so you are therefore unclean unclean, and they would give a certificate of divorce. Or, to be even more uh, diabolical, they would say, Honey, uh, you've let yourself go a little bit. You put on a few LBs, and and the neighbor lady, she's looking awfully good. Therefore, I've deemed you unclean. And they would issue a certificate of divorce. So the followers of Hillel, they loved this, because they could issue certificates of divorce left and right. And and the major issue for women, especially in this uh, portion of society, is they had no means by which to take care of themselves, except for a husband who had a job. And so if the husband didn't have a job, wasn't able to provide, they were instantly on the poverty line. And so that's the issue at hand. Now, the other side of the political coin, the more conservative view, were from a teacher named Shammai. Shammai's view was that the term unclean was specific to adultery. That what Moses was driving at is that you could issue a certificate of divorce in the realm of sexual immorality. And so, these are the two uh, schools of thought, and really what's happening here is the Pharisees didn't care about either one of them. (laughs) They could care less about which side Jesus picked. They just wanted him to pick a side. Because whichever side he picked, that meant he had more enemies on the other side. They were trying to set a trap for the Son of God. And so we continue on, and we see that Jesus doesn't dodge this question, but he, in fact, answers it. In verse 4, he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let man Uh, not separate and so jesus says all right you want to start with the law you want to come at me with the law i'm going to take you back to the beginning and he didn't mean the beginning of the law he meant the very beginning as in the beginning creation is what he's specifically referring to there in verse four he says uh, for he who created them created them both male and female And so he's taking them back to the beginning, and as he does this, he starts by saying, have you not read? Now that's what we call in the Bible uh, sanctified sarcasm because these Pharisees and scribes, uh, their job was to read. Jesus is saying, have you not read, did you not pick up your copy of the Torah today? Maybe you missed what it says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so he's intentionally being sarcastic with them, which I love because I'm sarcastic as well. You guys hadn't picked up on that yet. Uh, But the problem is uh, Jesus was sanctified in his sarcasm, and mine is rarely sanctified. But nevertheless, I like that Jesus was sarcastic in this spot. And what he does is he takes them back through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and refers them to what the biblical view of marriage is. And we often will get this question, what is your view of marriage today? Is it a traditional view? Is it a contemporary view? Is it a modern view? And if I get asked that question, I say no, (laughs) none of the above. That I prefer a biblical view. And the reason is because the biblical view does not change. Tradition changes, culture changes, whatever's contemporary changes. That's the very nature of things being contemporary. It changes with the times, but what does not change is God himself. His word does not change. He remains true to his character. And so what does God say about marriage? He says these three things. Jesus pulls this out of Genesis. He says that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female, singular, one male one female. And so, uh, if Jesus, if God had intended for Adam to have multiple wives, he would have brought him uh, several Eves to pick from. Or just take them all while you're at it. And the same is true for uh, Eve. If she wanted him to have multiple uh, husbands, he would have said, look, here's all your Adams. Take a pick, whichever one's tallest and the best looking. Pick that one out. Or, in fact, take all of them while you're at it, Eve. But instead, what happens is uh, God gives uh, one man therefore one woman and secondly notice with me that it's for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and so the strongest bond that god actually gives at the very beginning of the bible is between a husband and a wife this is supposed to be the strongest bond of any relationship now uh, that sounds really good to say But the reality is, especially if you've had children, we know this, um, at least I'll speak for myself, it is way easier for me to look past things my children do uh, than it is my spouse. (laughs) I can get way more upset. I can be angry for longer than what I can uh, with my kids. But uh, what God is trying to communicate is even the bond we have with our children takes a backseat to the bond we're supposed to have with our spouse. And so I like to remind my kids of this all the time. When they come in and they try to get in the middle of something, they're asking questions about things that might divide Mommy and I, and I say, look, here's the deal, uh, boys and girls, uh, one day y'all are going to leave. Bible even says you're going to leave and find another. And guess what? This lady, she is stuck with me. I mean, have you taken a look at her? She's a 10. I'm a 4 and a half to a 5 at best. Like, it's not going to get better for me. So I'm hanging on to this thing until she puts me in the ground. Like, that's how this is going to work. And so, the strong relationship, this reality is, we're going to be together long after these kids leave the house. And so, this is what God intended for the marriage relationship to be that kind of a bond. And then finally, thirdly, we see that, that, that two should become one flesh. Now, I don't have to get into all the anatomy of things, but it should be pretty clear based on how boys are made and how girls are made that two become one. Uh, one flesh this was by design it was by design for that relationship and it was by design by the way for procreation there is no uh, being fruitful and multiply unless there is uh, one male and one female we cannot fulfill what god commanded us to do and this is to be the building block of the family unit do you realize as you go through your bible that god started this all off with a family he started with adam and eve they jacked it all up. He then hit the reboot key with Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth. They didn't do so great either. He hit the reboot key again with Abraham. And he came to Abraham and he said, I want to bless you and I want to make you the father of many nations. But it started off with a family unit, which is precisely why Satan wants to attack it so vehemently. He wants to attack us from the inside out because he knows that the strong bond between husband and wife, the beginning of the family unit, is the way you can break the whole thing down. And so, we see here also that God gives us this example between his relationship for his son, Jesus is the groom, and the church, the bride. This is the picture he chose to actually relate the groom, the church, with the bride of Christ Christ. So we see this, this whole relationship being built around this family bond. But then you'll also notice through Scripture that while we're here on this earth, we were referred to as children of God, sons and daughters of promise. But when you begin to read into the eternity, in, into eternity what we're like eternally, we're actually called a bride. It's a switch in the relationship. And when you begin to process through that, that, that while we are children that need discipline in our time here on earth, what he is intending to do is actually take us from a child uh, into a bride. He's going to have a way different relationship with us for all of eternity. Right? You talk to your kids about things far differently, I hope, than you do your spouse. There's an intimacy there, and I'm not trying to be crass about that, but there is a getting to know one another at a much deeper level than what we have with our children. And so that's precisely what God's trying to communicate. And in fact, he's saying, look, if you're my bride, I'm going to let you in on things. You're going to be an ally, no longer just a child that I have to speak down to. And so this is the relationship and why it's so vitally important. So Jesus gives them an answer that they were not prepared for. But they say in verse 7 to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? Okay, thank you, Jesus, for laying that out for us. Why then did Moses make provision for this in the law in Deuteronomy 24? And he replied to them in verse 8 and said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so we see that in verse 8, and then he goes on in verse nine, 9 and says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so they come to Jesus with this question. Again, remember, as they're bringing this about, there's a heart problem with these Pharisees. And Jesus doesn't back away from it. Instead, he gives him an answer, and he says, Look, it was never in God's heart for people to be divorced. But instead, because of the hardness of men's hearts, he allowed it to take place. Thereby, divorce is a provision, not a mandate. It's not mandated that you must get divorced in the law of Moses. It's merely a provision. And it's also a provision that's surrounded in grace. Because do you know what the penalty uh, for adultery is in the Old Testament, it's not divorce, it's stoning, <laughs> it's death, it's take them both outside the camp, male and female, and kill them. And so, what the provision of divorce actually is is it's a sign of God's grace because of the deceit in our own hearts. And what we find is in uh, chapters like John chapter eight, this very topic is brought up to Jesus. He's there teaching in the in the temple in the outer courts. And as he's teaching, they bring to him a very a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. Now, you can imagine this scene for just a second play out in your mind. He's teaching, speaking to them, and they catch a woman in the very act of adultery. Uh, so that whole scene uh, is a little bit wild to begin with. And then they bring the woman to Jesus. Remember, if you're going to be caught in the act of adultery, it's probably not just uh, one person involved but two. And yet they don't bring the man and throw, them bef- throw him before Jesus, only the female. And so they throw her down there in front of him, and they say, all right, now what are you going to do with this problem, Jesus? How are you going to handle this? And he very calmly says to them in John chapter 8, verse 7, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Okay, you've got such a problem with this lady. You know the penalty as well as I do for adultery. You pick up a stone. You throw the first one out there at her. And then he goes about his business, and he begins to write on the ground in the dirt. What he wrote, we don't have record of. Some people think he was writing the Ten Commandments. Others think he was writing the actual sin, uh, the different sins of the men that were gathered around wanting to kill this woman. Either way, whatever he was writing on the ground, from the oldest to the youngest, in that order, they all just slinked off. They just disappeared. They didn't want to have anything to do with this once Jesus put that out there. And then looking up, he sees it's only him left and the woman. And he says there in John 8, he looks at her and he says, Woman, where are your accusers? He says this in verse uh, 10. He says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Like he's surprised by this. And she replies, No, Lord, Uh, not one. Uh, There's nobody left, just me and you. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. But he does not stop there. That's important to note. He goes on in this verse and says, go and sin no more. Lots of times we want to remember that text and we want to feel like Jesus is just okay with whatever we allow to happen in our life. It's important to understand what John says in John chapter 1, verse 17. He says that the law came through Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In that verse right there, he offers both grace, neither do I condemn you, and truth. Now cut it out. <laughs> he says you've got to change the way you're living. You've got to turn from this thing. It, it's got you trapped. And so Jesus is the perfect embodiment of both grace and truth. And yet going on there in verse 9, what's he talking about? He's, he's saying that And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that phrase sexual immorality in the Greek is the word uh, pornea, the same root word we get for pornography. And so when we want to just strictly define that to only be a relationship between a male and a female in adultery, Jesus painted a way bigger brush about what constitutes a sexual immorality. And so he says, This is the provision that's been laid out there except I tell you that if you divorce and you get remarried, you're in a spot of continual adultery which makes everybody really uncomfortable right about now. Except here's the thing. Is adultery the unpardonable sin? You see, for churches uh, all over, they've decided to take a stance upon this and they have refused to let people serve in church who have been remarried. They've refused to let them uh, be leaders in church because of divorce and remarriage. But I'd submit to you, what is the unpardonable sin? What sin is it that Jesus can't clean up? The only thing we read in our New Testament that's an unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That means denying Jesus and his lordship and his power in your life until you do not have another breath in your body or until you have denied him so much, he doesn't give you an opportunity to acknowledge him anymore. So, if, by the way, you're afraid that maybe you've committed the unpardonable sin, maybe you've overstepped the bounds just a little bit, I want to encourage you, if you're afraid that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, you have not actually committed the unpardonable sin. Just the very fact that you're worried about it, you're concerned about it, means that you still got a chance. That's, that's a huge praise the Lord right there. Maybe I did it. I don't know. I'm not sure. Here's the thing. If you're worried, you didn't do it. It's those people that do not care about God, don't give him a second thought. It's to that person that's in uh, danger. And so, here we look at this situation, and the reality is that if we're going to draw a line in the sand and say you cannot serve, you can't do these things, you can't step out and be a part of this congregation from a leadership standpoint, uh, then we've completely negated what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5:17 which says therefore I am a new creation in Christ Jesus so tons of people have been hurt for years and years and years because they have repented from things that have taken place in their past and yet they've had it held over their head by congregations they brought out the shame stick and the whoop stick over and over and over again to try to remind them about sins of their past and they've negated what the New Testament says, which is that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. That means if you lay it down and you repent, and you are truly repentant to the Lord, there is nothing, we're going to read here in just a little bit, there is nothing that God cannot fix. Nothing is too big for him. And so that's the stance that we take. But the reality is, uh, when two become one flesh, any time those two that were one flesh become two again, uh, there's tearing. (laughs) There's tearing, and there's pain, and there's hurt. It happens uh, every time. It doesn't matter what that relationship was or was not. I don't care who you are, and we've all been affected by it. That's just the reality. At this point in time where we're at as a society, none of us has come out clean from this deal. And so if you've uh, been a part of it or you've known people that have been a part of it, you can agree that when there is a tearing apart, a pain is sure to follow. But I want to encourage you not to underestimate the power of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Don't feel like that thing has to be around forever or define you forever because it does not. And when we decide that it has, then we have made Jesus a little bit less powerful than what he is. Now then, continuing on, his disciples said to him, in verse 10, if, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better for us not to marry. I mean, they listened to this whole thing, and they said, look, after all that you just laid out there, it must be better just not get married. This sounds too stinking hard. And so, they've got a good point. Uh, Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 11, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born this way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have uh, have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. A few months ago, the boys came to me and they had a question. They said, Dad, um, where do virgins come from? And I answered the way uh, I think every man in America would answer. I said, that is a great question, boys. Go ask your mother. <laughs> and they said, uh, we already did, and she told us to come ask you. Like, oh, man. And so I set them down. I said, all right, here's the deal. Uh, vir- virgins, I want you boys to jot this down. Virgins come from right where you think they would. They come from Virginia except the more liberal ones, they come from West Virginia. And then I thought, look, I got out of that one. Felt pretty good about me. But then they followed it up with this question. Okay, thanks, Dad. Now, where do eunuchs come from? Like, oh. So I said, go ask your mother. (laughs) All right, so back on the topic of eunuchs. Thank you, Lord, for taking us from divorce to eunuchs. That's what I want to say. Here's what Jesus uh, answers for them. He says, uh, for some people, it is better for them not to get married. And for others, uh, it is not. He gives them a yes and a no. And he begins by saying, uh, some were born eunuchs from their mother's womb. What that means is the reality of the situation is there are some who are born with no sexual desire. They do not have a desire to get married. They don't have an attraction to the opposite sex. And what we see is that is how they were actually born. That's the reality. The second group is, there are those that were made that way by men. Now remember, remember, what time frame we're talking about in the New Testament. Especially throughout the Old Testament leading up to this point, we've got kings ruling all over. And what kings would often do in order to stop uh, their higher council, their leaders, from potentially sleeping with one of their women is they would have them castrated. They felt like that would take care of that problem. Plus, when they didn't have the sexual drive, they were more likely to give a really good answer. And most men can probably silently nod their head and go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You don't have sex drive. You're probably going to give way clearer answers uh, than those of us who struggle. So there you have the the viewpoint that these kings would take. And so they would actually castrate their upper cabinet where they would not have any sex drive, uh, which is really horrific. And when you begin to go back through your Old Testament and you see people like uh, Daniel and you see Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, the reality is most likely King Nebuchadnezzar, as evil as he was, probably made all four of those men eunuchs to set on his council. And so you've got a guy like Daniel who is maybe one of the most godly guys in all the Old Testament who this uh, was taken away from him by an evil king. And so, this is the second group that Jesus mentions. The third group that he mentions is those who willfully decide. We see there in uh, verse 12, who for the sake of the kingdom become eunuchs. In other words, they take a vow of celibacy. They make a decision, I'm not going to marry for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, this is what the apostle Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, he's addressing those uh, people, and he's saying, listen, it's better for people to be like I am. I'm not married, and I'm free then to go do the work of the ministry because I'm not uh, held down by a wife at home or kids at home, and so I'm actually more free to evangelize. Now, what I also want to mention is that Paul is saying this from a very particular perspective. You see, when Paul was first uh, Saul of Tarsus, he served... Uh, in the Sanhedrin now in order to be a part of this high Jewish council of 70 Jewish men to be a part of the Sanhedrin you'd have to be married it's one of the requirements to be in the Sanhedrin and yet we see uh, Paul saying it's better not to marry and we see no mention of Paul's wife whatsoever Uh, church history tells us that the apostle Paul's wife uh, Saul's wife at the time did not care for his newfound Christianity that he actually uh, she actually abandoned him left him and so the apostle paul and i think this is important for us to understand especially if you've experienced divorce and you feel like that has made you somehow less than less than in the body of christ um the guy who wrote 13 of the 27 books in you in your new testament uh, he was divorced (laughs) nothing is impossible with god and so as paul is writing this understanding the pain of being torn away from a relationship uh, like this, what he says there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 7, he says, For I wish that all men were even as I am myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in another. To take a vow of celibacy is actually a gift of. From God, That means uh, that it is not for everybody. You have to be given this gift, which is precisely why when so many t- people take the vow and they've not been given the gift, there are these massive struggles in their life because this wasn't God's gift that they actually had. Paul goes on to say it's better for you to be married than to burn with lust, to burn with passion. And so this is the gift that he speaks about from his particular vantage point And yet, uh, it does not mean you must live that way in celibacy or out of uh, marriage in order to be a a good evangelist. We see Philip as an example in the early church in Acts chapter 8. Philip was an awesome evangelist to the area of Samaria, and we're told he settled in Caesarea Maritime where he had four daughters who all prophesied. So he has this beautiful family that actually evangelize uh, with him. And so all that to say Regardless of your past, regardless of which side of this coin you fall on, uh, it does not limit God any more than we allow it to. Now, Jesus continues from there in verse uh, 13. is where we'll pick up. And then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them, and Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, coming off this topic of divorce and remarriage, it should be no surprise what gets layered into this is children who are almost always in the middle of these kind of things. It's the kids, right? And so we see kids are immediately brought up to Jesus, but what I wanted to point out to you uh, in that is that Luke's account says that they brought the little children to Jesus. The root word there, of they, it was actually the masculine form in the Greek. That's important to me at least because what it says is fathers brought their children to Jesus. Dads were the ones actually bringing their kids to him to have their his hands laid upon their children, their family, and be prayed over. And uh, a recent Barna survey, this is about eight years old, says that uh, if dads, just dads, not even including mothers, stay in church and lead their family spiritually, their children are ten times more likely to continue to follow Jesus throughout the remainder of their life. Now, that's not a knock on moms who are the spiritual leaders. The, The reality is this is the way God built the family. Men, we were called to lead our family spiritually. And if we do not do this, we can see, we can see in our society that struggles horribly to have uh, fatherly influences just what it truly looks like. And so we see the dads now bringing their children to Jesus so that he could lay hands on uh, them. Now, many times as dads, we have the responsibility of laying our hands on our children. Uh, More often than not, it's in Discipline. And it's very true what the Old Testament says, spare the rod, uh, spoil the child. So we certainly don't want spoiled children. It is important for us to step in as disciplinarians, Uh, but what I want to encourage you to do, something that I'm challenged to do, is to lay my hands on my children twice as much to pray as I do discipline. And I have started this practice of intentionally laying my hands on my children at night and praying over them praying blessings over them, and I am not ashamed about praying blessings over my children. I prophesy all kinds of things into their life. I figure the Lord's going to sort it out. I mean, I pray for them to be powerful evangelists, to be mighty men and women of God, and I want to encourage you to do that because here's the thing. When we pray into their lives, we get an opportunity to show the power of prayer and interact. Your kids are going to have struggles. They're going to have issues that come up. These issues can bog us down, they can slow us down, or we can see this as an opportunity for us to step in and pray for them. Pray out loud, encourage them, bring in the struggles, let's pray about this thing. And so that's precisely what we see about these men that brought their little children to Jesus. All right, continuing on to a lighter topic is uh, we're going to talk about money now next. We're going to just get them all out there this morning. Uh, verse 16 now behold one came to him and said good teacher what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life what we're told in the other synoptic accounts your Bible might actually highlight this this is the story of the rich young ruler so this young man who's not only young he's also wealthy and he's also powerful he's got everything by the way that our society tells us is good He's got youth, he's got health, he's got uh, money, and he's got power. And so Jesus is going to go on and show to him uh, the poverty of riches contrasted with the richness of poverty. Now, verse 17, and so he, Jesus, replies to this young man and he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus replied and said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And so he starts off by saying, A Good teacher. Now Jesus quickly replies and says, Who are you calling good Only one is good, and that is God. What he is doing is he is uh, in a roundabout way, in an indirect way saying, you do realize you're referring to me as God, which is accurate in this case. And so Jesus indirectly says, all right, now you've got this right. I'm God that you're speaking to, and I'm going to give you a list of commandments that you need to follow. And so he takes him all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, the top 10 list, and he begins to go down through the list. And the young man's checking things off. He's getting the grade card out. He's going, boy, I'm doing pretty good. What do I still lack? In what way am I still lacking? And then Jesus uh, follows it up like he always does. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, that means blameless in in this society, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when the young man heard this saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was very wealthy. And so Jesus, like a good doctor, uh, he pokes around, and he pokes around, and he examines until he finds that spot that, ooh, boy, that hurt. That was the one uh, that got me. I love this about him, though, because uh, what he does is he examines our heart. And here in a little bit, we're going to take communion. I'm going to encourage you guys to examine to allow the Holy Spirit to actually do the examination because if I do the examining, I look right past that spot that's sore. I don't even want to acknowledge that it's there. I'll go right on past. I'll pretend like it didn't happen. But the Holy Spirit will reveal it, and that's precisely what happened to this young man. He's done a tremendous job from the outside. He looks awesome. But what God reveals to him is that he's got a problem with money. Now, money isn't actually the issue, by the way. We can often uh, misquote the New Testament that money is the root of all evils. Uh, but what the uh, New Testament actually says, what Paul tells Timothy, is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's how we view money. It, it, this is the issue for this young man. And the truth about the Bible is there's tons of rich people in the Bible. There's all kinds of them. I mean, look at Abraham, who I just mentioned. He was one of the richest men of his day. He had 318 trained soldiers. That's pretty stinking awesome. i take 318 trained men. I mean, that, that's great. But, but yet, Abraham was godly. And so we see different men like David and like uh, Solomon, and we have all these godly men. Even down into the New Testament, guys like Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Christ his tomb, was a rich man. And even his own disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their father Zebedee was a very wealthy commercial fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. We know this because John was allowed access into the trial of Jesus. You don't get access unless you've got connections, unless you've got some means. And so the issue is not money. The problem is anything. And that means anything that I let dictate my life over God is a problem. Now then, verse twenty-three. And then Jesus said to his disciples, "Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven." Jesus knows. Look, this thing is hard. Like this is not an easy thing. And the reality uh, that we have to face here in this area, and really in this country throughout, is that none of us is poor. We are all financially rich. Now you might, uh, you know, turn your nose up and think that's not true. But the truth is, uh, just go to Africa sometime. Just go take a tour through the slums of Africa. Uh, Just go to rural uh, Zambia. Take a little walk around. You'll see people with no toilet, no running water. They barely have a roof. There's real poverty out there. We don't have that issue in this country, but the issue we have is almost more demonic because it's dependency. We are dependent upon our 401 k we are dependent upon the government sending us the next check. We're dependent on, on being able to go and stand in a line and get just enough food to get me by the next month because there is no desperation. There is no desperation. So people just continue to shuffle their way through this life and never bother to realize that Jesus has got so much more in mind for them. And that's precisely the issue for this young man. He is on the rich side of the spectrum, but the same exists for those on the poorer side of the spectrum. The reality is we need to rely upon him who is the giver of all good gifts. And so continuing on, verse 24, and again I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he understands how hard it is, He wants to give them a story. Look, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to paint the picture. This is how hard it is when you've got enough comfort to keep you good and comfortable. Verse 25, and when the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? You see, for centuries they were plagued with this idea. This is, by the way, where the prosperity gospel comes from. They believed that if you were uh, righteous, if you were doing really well, then God gave you material blessings. Now, that may be true for some, but then that also means that for others, they're very unrighteous and they still have material blessings. So, how do you reconcile these things? And so they believed that if you were doing really well, then God blessed you uh, physically and he blessed you financially. And so when they heard this, their mindset was, these rich guys, they're the most holy in all the land. And so they come to him and they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them in verse 26 and said, with men, this is impossible. If men are looking to their own works, if they are looking to their own abilities, then this is strictly impossible but with God. Anytime I see that in my Bible, I get excited. Highlight that every time. But with God, all things are possible. You see, the issue with the prosperity gospel is um, apparently Jesus never heard it. (laughs) He didn't get the memo that uh, you can just name it and claim it. If you just believe it, your daddy will give it to you. The reality is uh, Jesus... Back in Matthew 17, 27, what happened is the temple tax came due. He had to send Peter off to the Sea of Galilee to fish to get a half a stinking shekel. He didn't even have pocket change. And he's the son of God. So Jesus knew what it was like to need a little bit of money. And so we see this is the issue. But going down to verse 26, all things are possible with God. What that means for us is failed marriages, failed businesses, failed relationships with their children, that if we get it in our head that these things cannot be fixed, or we get it in our head that somehow we can fix them under our own strength, we are going to be left wanting over and over and over again, and the truth is we must turn to him who is capable of healing all things. Nothing is impossible with God. Then Peter in verse 27 answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? I mean, Peter's asking a good question. He's looking back, he's going, to Look, this is great for this guy, but the reality is for me, I've left everything. I left a business, I left my family. What about me? It, it's, it sounds more selfish than what it really is. This is a question that we ask God all the time, probably in our quiet time. If you've given up things for Jesus, uh, this is the kind of question you'd ask. J- Peter is bold enough to say it out loud in this spot, and Jesus answers him in verse 28 and says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. This is the promise. This is what God's economy actually looks like. That we give up things in this life, but here's the reality. Things aren't what they seem. We, we, we get so caught up in our own head that it's only what I can see that is real. But What Jesus is saying, you have no idea what I have to actually show you in the life to come. We get so focused on the temporary, we totally forsake the eternal. And he's trying to point us back to eternity. And the reality is for these 12 guys, uh, 11 out of the 12 are going to suffer gruesome deaths. The only one that avoids it is John. He's the only one that gets out of it, but keep in mind, uh, Caesar and Nero boiled him alive in oil. So it didn't go that great even for John. He got stranded on the island of Patmos. So for every single one of them, they suffered tremendously in this life. But what's the promise here from Jesus? You're all going to sit on thrones and rule with me. Take a, a look around what's really happening. Look with your spiritual eyes. Be opened up because here's the thing. Verse 30 says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. If you have suffered in this life, if you know people that are suffering in this life, I'm going to encourage you because what we see is not reality. God has so much more to show us in the next kingdom for all of eternity. We are going to be so surprised when we get to heaven. Uh, for one, we're going to see people way farther ahead in line than probably what we thought they were going to be. I'm going to be way back to the back. Y'all are probably going to be way up the front. There they are. Hey, how you doing? But when we think about uh, young people, for example, heard a story this week about a four-year-old girl who's got terminal cancer, it's heartbreaking. Mama's probably going to lose her little girl, and she's heartbroken, and she should be. But, but here's what I told my wife. The reality is for that little girl, she's going to have one whopper of a crown for all of eternity. Like we're going to get there and go, man, there she is. And that's the case for lots of young people who we get in our head, they were taken too soon, but then you look at your life and you think about how much of this world did they get to avoid? I mean, how much pain, how much trouble did they actually get to completely bypass? So we are going to be so shocked when we get there because they're going to be way up at the front of the line or we're way in the back. But the reality is, that we are called to be this as a Christian people. We are called to, in the words of one of the most underrated worship bands of the 80s, 38 Special. If they would have just loved Jesus, it would have been so much better. We are called to hold on loosely, but don't let go. Right? We are to hold on loosely to the things of this earth, but cling tightly to Jesus, knowing that he is always good, all the time, always just. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for Matthew 19. As hard as some of these things are uh, to go through and to process, Lord, thank you for that promise at the end of that chapter, the promise of regeneration, that we are called to be regenerated, new believers, new Christian people. Thank you for promises like we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful to be a new creation, Lord. We praise you for that. Father, we pray that you would continue to examine, that you would look into our hearts, look into our minds, Father. Sift out those things that need to be sifted out. Lord, push on those, those buttons of pain, those pressure points that we need to all address. Father, please address those in our lives so that we can continue on to be stronger and stronger and continue in your economy to do more and more for you. Boy, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. I would call you guys, as Jake and Michaela are going to play this song, to simply just come up at your leisure and take take the communion elements with you and uh, have some time to just reflect. And as you take this time uh, to reflect upon what the Lord is revealing in your life, uh, ask him to point out those things that you need to work on those pressure points, the things that we so easily want to just look past and kind of hope that we can ignore, I would pray that in this next couple minutes you take that time to just reflect upon that and then we'll come back and we'll take the elements together.
1: Every time I try to make it on my own Every time I try to stand and start to fall All those lonely roads that I have traveled on There was Jesus When the life I built came crashing to the ground When the friends I had were nowhere to be found I couldn't see it then, but I can see it now There was Jesus There was Jesus In the waiting, in the searching In the healing and the hurting Like a blessing buried broken pieces Every minute, every moment Where I've been and where I'm going Even when I didn't know it or couldn't see it There was Jesus For this man who needs amazing kindness Forgiveness at a price I couldn't pay I'm not perfect so I thank God every day There was Jesus oh, There was Jesus In the waiting, in the searching In the healing and the hurting Like a blessing made the broken pieces every minute every moment where I've been and where I'm going even when I didn't know it couldn't see it there was Jesus on the mountain in the valleys there was Jesus in the shadows of the alleys in the fire in the flood Jesus. always is and always was
0: Time is about self-reflection, about the about the sacrifice that was made, so that we can actually have access to the throne of grace, so we can come boldly. And so, as the apostle Paul was trying to work out of the Corinthian church um, all the things that they would gotten wrong about uh, about the relationships, how they were to be to one another. Uh, what he brought him back to was simple communion, <laughs> the Lord's Supper. And what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received uh, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your broken body. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you laid down on our behalf, that for all the rules and the regulations we try to get in between it, Lord, we're sorry. But we thank you for the way you loved us so much that you died for us. And we take your body as a church. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." And so, Father, we, as a church, take this uh, this cup that represents your blood that you laid out on our behalf. We thank you that what this really means is we remember is that it's all about regeneration. It's all about forgiveness. You didn't die so that we could be stuck here in our sins, Lord. So thank you as we examine some of the more difficult parts of our lives and our culture and our society that we can come to your throne and we can partake together as a group of believers and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you cleanse us not from the outside in but from the inside out. And so we praise you for this cup in Jesus' name. Would you please stand as we celebrate?
1: knees again, gotta beg and please again, I need you, oh I need you, walking down the stairs are water for my thirsty soul, I need you, oh I need you, your forgiveness is like like the sound of the symphony to my ears It's like holy water on my skin Dead man walking, slave to sin Want to know about being born again I need you Oh God, I need you Take me to the riverside Take me unbaptized, I, I need, need you. you, oh God, I need you, oh, oh your God, forgiveness is it's like sweet, sweet, honey, sweet honey, honey on my lips. Yeah, in Lord. Lord. like the sound of beneath my ears, it's like holy, holy water on I need it every day is the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. I don't want to abuse your grace, God. I need it every day is the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. I don't want to abuse your grace, God. I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change I, I don't want to abuse your grace God, I need it every day. day It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change Your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips. Like the sound of symphony to my ears It's like holy water Your forgiveness Like sweet, sweet honey on my lips Like the sound of symphony to my ears It's like holy Water on my skin. It's like holy water on my skin. It's like holy water.
0: And the church says, Amen. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Reminder: we got lunch afterwards, so if it's not going to rain, we'll eat outside. If it's going to rain, we'll just eat inside. So it's all good. Uh, Thank you guys as we work through some difficult parts of Scripture. just want to encourage you. If you'd like prayer at all, I'm happy to hang around and uh, would love the opportunity to pray with you, for you, alongside you. God bless. We'll see you next week.